Hi, welcome to Neoverse, a podcast hosted by Clara and Carolina, where we discuss all matters from neuroscience to philosophy and beyond. Today's episode is on mycelium networks, and I particularly want to first obviously explain what mycelium networks are, and then discuss whether or not we can compare so-called intelligence that arises from these fungal networks in forests to the brain and how the brain works and human intelligence. That's so interesting. (laughs) So mycelium are a type of fungi that form a network of threads called hyphae. And these networks are the basis from which mushrooms grow. So the mushrooms that we see are the fruiting bodies or the reproductive organs of this bigger fungal organism. Mm -hmm. So not all mycelia produce mushrooms, but all mushrooms come from mycelium. And these mycelium are commonly found in forests and they are a huge part of the forest ecosystem because they take in small molecules and nutrients, nutrients from decomposed wood and plant material, and they excrete the enzymes to break these materials down. And the soil, the soil can be so rich, one cubic inch of soil can contain as much as eight miles of mycelium because of how dense the networks are and they're so dense and the threads are so fine that it's not visible to the human eye so like don't try to dig up the soil (laughs) forest and find a net (laughs) a web yeah and so in the 90s a mycologist known as paul stamets came up with this idea that the mycelia are the earth's internet because they're responsible for the reallocation of nutrients, which is the same role of the internet, reallocating resources across the world and a form of communication for distant locations. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, there's been increasing evidence of the role of mycelium in bringing the forest together And you may have heard of it being described as the wood wide web instead of the... Uh That's so funny. (laughs) It isn't surprising that mycelium should have a huge role as fungi were actually the first organisms to come to land uh, before plants and the fungal mycelium produce acid known as oxalic acid as well as other enzymes and this chemically reacts with minerals in rock and this erodes the rock and ultimately produces soil And so fungi actually contributed to the production of soil in the first place, Mm -hmm. which they now exist in, um, and which formed the basis of plants to grow and therefore forests to form. That's so clever how they basically created their own environment. Environment? Yeah, Yeah, right? They are honestly... Fascinating. So (laughs) fascinating and like just so intelligent. intelligent. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. On so many levels. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a bit about uh, mycelial intelligence. There's a woman, Suzanne Simard, who is a pioneer for conceptualizing how forests work because of her work on mycelium. She is a professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia and the author of a book, Finding the Mother Tree. And what her research found is that the trees communicate through these mycelium networks and it is because the, the networks encapsulate tree roots and they are then able to work as an extension of these tree roots and, as I mentioned earlier, transport chemicals such as carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, as well as water 
and even defense signals and kinship signals so that trees can know where their offspring are and how their offspring are doing. That's so interesting that they communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually found a paper talking about exactly that and how underground signals carried through common mycelium networks warn neighboring plants of aphid attacks. And this was a paper by Zdenka Babikova. And uh, what they described is that, like you mentioned, these mycelium networks connect different plants. And when one plant is undergoing an aphid attack, it can communicate with a different plant by sending specific compounds to the plant that hasn't received the attack. And aphids are really harmful to plants Mm -hmm. because they prevent important metabolites to being released in the air, such as carbon dioxide. And these metabolites can also attract pollinators and repel aphids. And so they demonstrated that these mycelial networks do communicate by sending these compounds. And the main compound that they found in this specific case was methyl salicylates. And this was detected in the aphids as well as the parasites that were on the plants, showing that this compound was transported across the mycelial networks. And and what's really interesting is that this compound was also shown to elicit electrophysiological activity in the antenna of both aphids and parasitoids. Wait, what? And that's what caused the bugs to be removed? No, the methyl salacetate was what caused uh, the bugs to uh, go away. But I think it was the electrophysiological activity that was present in the methyl salacetate, which was the nature of the communication um, between the plants. Ah, and then an end product was... It affected the aphids and caused them to... Oh, that's so yeah, clever. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so they noticed electrophysiologically active compounds in both the uh, plants and... Well, in the donor plants and the plants connected to the donors. So what they call the donor plants is the plant that had the original aphid infection that sent these signals. So yeah, it's really interesting how these networks allow for interplant communication. And then this communication ultimately affects the functioning of the trophic systems on several levels. So I think this goes again a little bit back to what you said about the intelligence of fungi, not only from the functional sense of sending electrophysiological activity that allows plants to protect themselves and has the symbiotic relationship with plants, as well as the fact that they are affecting the ecosystem on several levels. They're not just playing at their own level. They're playing at the plant level. They're playing at the insect level. with the rest of the ecosystem. Exactly. It's crazy. I find it really interesting, of course, uh, from my perspective, that there's also electrical activity passed through these networks. Mm -hmm. And I also came across a Royal Society paper written by Andrew Adamatsky called Towards Fungal Computer. That sounds (laughs) fascinating. It is. And they measured electrical activity from mushrooms and were able to show that electrical activity recorded in these mushrooms could act as a reliable indicator of their response to thermal and chemical stimulation. So it's a similar concept as in the brain of information being trans- constantly transformed from being chemical to electrical 
And because you yeah. in the brain, you've got chemical messengers, which are neurotransmitters like dopamine or what, what have you. And then it gets transformed into a spike, an electrical signal mm-hmm. or other very complex electrical signals. And I just find it, yeah, fascinating, this biochemical, physical yeah. <laughs> <laughs> signaling and transfer of information. And really interestingly, they also found that when there were multiple mushrooms in a cluster, stimulating one mushroom led to electrical activity in another. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's like a neuron. <laughs> I, exactly. As well as the fact that there was baseline spontaneous electrical activity in the fruits, which we've talked oh about spontaneous activity in neurons before. Yeah. In a previous episode on noise in the brain. Yeah. And overall, the paper did expand on the fact that computation like simple logical computations can be performed by these mycelial networks based on their experimentally tested electrical activity and they created computational models to demonstrate this but i think more more it's quite difficult to study mushrooms as well especially in their natural habitats because they're often done in the lab such as this case where they used like commercial mushroom growing kits to Mm -hmm. do this but to study it in the natural environment is quite a challenge which is why I really admire Suzanne Simard because she was one of the first to study transfer of information between trees in a forest and she if you watch her TED talks or talks in general or podcasts I also listened to I think it was by Emergence magazine she talks about how she had to face the bears and all of the forest creatures when (laughs) trying to study them which I found really entertaining But yeah, so moving on from this, I then wanted to talk about forest intelligence and whether or not we can compare the way plants work to the way the brain works, because I think there's obviously a temptation to make this direct comparison, but how similar are they really? Mm -hmm. There was a book called Memory and Learning in Plants, which Suzanne Simard, (laughs) again, wrote a chapter in on the mycelium networks. And of course, this book really interested me because my main interest in the brain is learning and memory. And I wasn't really aware that this was a thing that was studied in plants. But of course, there are forms of this type of intelligence in how plants work. So a key thing that Suzanne Simard's research found, which I forgot to mention, (laughs) is that they were able to map trees and their associated fungi in a forest. And they found that there are nodes which are more highly connected to other trees. And this is what she then termed the mother tree because they send nutrients to other plants more. Oh, okay. And they send a larger proportion of these nutrients to their direct offspring. That's so interesting. I wonder how they know it's their offspring. I know. I think it must be something genetic. Or the nature of their connections perhaps is different because of... Or maybe the pathway is shorter. I'm not sure. And maybe um, they... Just speculating at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also speculating. (laughs) Maybe it's also to do with like competing environments and like knowing that okay that one is a competitor this one isn't so it must be my offspring or something yeah so maybe there's a way of communicating the connections of one tree to another tree so like the mother tree can be aware of the offspring's connections and then maybe the offspring's connections is distinct 
from a non-offspring's yeah, connection. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. That, that was so complex. No, no, no. That does make sense. And that relates to a paper that I read. Yeah. So this paper is talking about the structure of the hyphae. And so therefore that relates to how the trees make connections. And the way that the tips of the hyphae grow and orient is really important for their behavior and to make appropriate responses to the environment and this is done through several processes including calcium signaling which also happens in the brain yeah as well as other plant proteins and like i've mentioned the orientation is really important so they tested this by using a specific cathode position and field polarity and allowed the hyphae to grow and the hyphae would grow in a specific direction but then when they changed the position of the cathode and changed the field polarity they then grew in a different direction so they changed direction based on electrical based activity on, yes because isn't a cathode positive, positively charged, charged. Yeah. yeah and germ tube emergence towards the cathode is attenuated when the voltage activated calcium channel is deleted so it requires calcium it, cal- it requires voltage activated calcium, calcium, calcium channels for the direction of its growth and which is very very similar to activity dependent synapse formation exactly in the brain yes wow it would be so fascinating to understand better the nature of the different connections between the mycelium and the roots of different tree types. But maybe the electrical field potentials and the voltage presence is what gives the mycelium its structure. So maybe due to its structure, that's how it recognizes their kins. Yeah, this is one of my key interests in terms of neurons. So a neuron contains an axon where it transmits its signals to other neurons, but it also contains dendrites where it receives the signals. And the location of the connections on the dendrites really influences the impact that this connection has on neuronal activity. In other words, the location matters. And this is developmentally influenced by activity. And this is so similar to this voltage-dependent calcium signaling that's happening to form mycelial connections. Yeah. But is that form formation of mycelial connections to roots, or is it just mycelium? This is mycelium growth and their direction. Okay, so we don't know whether trees create electrical signals or where the electrical signals would come from yeah. nat- in the natural world. Yeah, we don't. And... Uh, I was also speculating when I said that maybe it's due to the structure of the hyphae and the mycelium that they recognize each other. But it was just like a really interesting observation that the structure and the direction of growth of the mycelia are dependent on this field polarity and are dependent on these voltage-activated calcium channels. This is so interesting. Um, Something else I wanted to touch on was more similarities between mycelium intelligence and human intelligence on a larger scale. So what is the definition of intelligence? Suzanne Simard, she explained it as containing two components. One is the existence of a crystallized intelligence. So an intelligence that can be solidified, which is similar to memory. And the second type is a fluid intelligence which is similar to learning. And this is more like plasticity. We talk about neuroplasticity. Yeah, so crystallized intelligence results from stronger pathways, whereas fluid intelligence results from weaker, 
more transient and more changeable pathways. Uh, so this is just in mycelia? Or? So this is a definition of intelligence that's more based actually on neuroscience. Oh, okay. Um, so if we then take this neuroscience-based theory of intelligence and compare that to how the mycelia work, she argues that it is comparable nice. because of this node structure of the trees and mycelium that I described previously. So there are these strongly connected modules to the more prominent nodes like the mother trees. Mm. This enables the, the existence of crystallized knowledge and memory, which is similar to what you explained with that AFID paper. Yeah. So I don't know if that paper in particular talked about this, but I have seen studies that showed that the defense response that you described mm-hmm. has a sort of memory and that in the future oh. when aphids attack again, the trees that had previously been exposed to the defense signals mm-hmm. are more resilient. It, no, they didn't explore this. They just explored the communication between the the plants essentially or, or the mycelium networks and how they protect each other but yeah that would yeah. be really interesting to explore so it's a form of ecological memory and then the there are also weaker links uh, within the mycelial networks that enable flexible adaptive behaviors which is more directly similar to what you described of learning yeah so she describes this structure as being scale free what is scale free So this means that there are very few highly connected nodes or hubs in a network, but then many more weakly connected nodes. Okay. And this fits the what I just described of the stronger connected oh. nodes are more responsible for the crystallized knowledge memory form of intelligence, and the weakly connected nodes are more responsible for the fluid intelligence learning plasticity yeah i was gonna say that that reminds me of plasticity and like homeostatic plasticity and that washing out the unused connections yeah so strengthening the network over time through Mm -hmm. experience yeah so this is the way that she conceptualizes how we can compare the human brain-based intelligence and the mycelial networks of the forest and i think it's really fascinating that there is this link across um systems yeah it not only this very comparable intelligence as you described but also the mycelial network intelligence itself in terms of the how it affects the multitrophic levels and things like that so yeah yeah although the whole time i was uh researching this i had this one thing in mind which is something we talked about with lisa Mm -hmm. on our episode on Understanding. understanding the world through physics and it's are these systems mechanistically and structurally similar because they needed to perform similar functions? Ah, yes. We yes, we discussed that due to the morphology of neurons versus the morphology oh, of like the a space. Web. Yes, yes, exactly. So in that episode, uh, Carolina was talking about a paper she came across that compared the structure and function of the cosmic web and the brain and the structural composition and how there's similarities between the two and we were discussing whether or not we can actually make this comparison Mm -hmm. and yeah something we we discussed was maybe it evolved in this way because it requires similar functionality and so the same structures enable the systems to perform this optimally that's so interesting. So we've done a comparison between the morphology of neurons and the morphology of the cosmic web, and now we're comparing the structure 
and function and plasticity of the brain with the way that mycelium networks work. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering if there's other comparisons that we can do and what our next comparison oh, will be. I think there are comparisons at every level. Yeah. yeah. That is the question, though. What will our next comparison be? And we'll end the episode there. I hope that you enjoyed this slightly different topic, but yet seemingly similar mm-hmm. to neuroscience in the brain. And we really enjoyed talking about mycelium networks and the power of fungi.